I love when, when you bring it to kids. It's so simple, but yet so profound, the things that Jesus went through. We're going to take the same story, and we're going to look at it from a, from a different perspective, from, from a cultural perspective, from, from what may have really been going on behind the scenes. Sometimes we just read that whole story and we just gloss over it. And sometimes we only pay attention to it when it's, when it's Easter. But there is, there's a whole cultural thing that moves behind that entire story. In fact, that story was set up thousands of years before it actually took place. They have to understand it's written from a Eastern perspective. And so they use pictures, and they, use, they just don't use abstract ideas, but they use pictures. If you were to ask somebody in America, describe God, you might get words like, he's just, and God, God is love, and he's omnipotent. But if you ask somebody from, from the East, from the Mideast, and, and you say, describe God for me, they would say, God is, God is a rock. God is father. God is a shepherd. And so they look at God very differently. They looked at God in very concrete ways. And so the story of Jesus is very um, concrete in the way it's pictured. It's not just an abstract set of ideas. One historian I was reading, a scholar, um, he, he was teaching on the Bedouin uh, shepherds that are in the Mideast. And, and these people, they, they live really harsh lives. They live in the desert. It's 120 degrees on a cool day, and they've lived very, very simply, and it's a very hard, and it's a very rough life. But these people live, and they, and they do things that date back to the Bible. They have traditions that they keep that, that date back to the days of the Old Testament. For thousands of years, they lived the same way. There's one um, story that, that this scholar writes uh, the way they make their contracts. They don't sign anything in the desert. They don't have a little piece of paper that's printed out on their HP computer. And they don't sign it and say, okay, this is a legal contract. They, they do it in a very different way. They do it in a very symbolic way, in a very concrete way. He witnessed a, a marriage taking place. And the two families would come together and they would create the deal. And the father of the, of the groom would say, this is what my son is. This is how my son is. He's a good man. He's a hard worker. He can provide. And the father of the bride would come and say, this is how my daughter is. She's a good woman. She can do the things that a wife needs to do. And so once the two families agree, and he watches this, they, they enter into a contract, into a covenant. And the fathers take a cow, and they slit the cow's throat. And the blood spills onto the ground. You know how much blood is in a cow? A lot. And, and the pool of blood gets larger and larger on the ground in the sand. And because this is a contract between uh, two people, the father of the groom goes first because he was considered in this culture the greater of the two parties. And he would walk into that blood with his sandals and he would stomp his feet. And he would walk out of it. And then the father of the, gro- uh, the bride would come and, and he would walk into that blood. And then he would walk back out of it. And what this signifies is this, the father of the groom. If, if my son does not live up to that, what I, with the contract that we have agreed upon, this is what you can do to me. You can spill my blood and walk through it. And the father of the bride is saying the same thing. If my daughter does not live up to what we've agreed upon, you can spill my blood 
and step through it. And to this day, to this day, if one of those two parties did not fulfill their contract, if the son turned out to be a jerk or the wife didn't fulfill what she was supposed to, you could find one of those fathers, not the son, not the daughter, but the father, somewhere in the desert, with his throat slit, puddle of blood, and family tracks. This goes on to this very day. This is the way they think in very concrete terms. No lawyering up in the Middle East. Turns me to Genesis 15. If you need a Bible, we have Bibles. Does anybody need one? We're going to be, we're going to be ripping through the, the, the Scriptures today. We're going to be looking at a lot of text. So if you have or need one, we have them for you. Just put your hand up. We'll make sure you get one. You can keep it. So you can scribble in it. You can write in it. You could whatever you'd like. Anybody else? Lori, you good? Sally? Genesis 15, verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. This is Abram. Later, he will become Abraham. And God is saying, listen, he's already said, listen, Abram, I am going to cause you to be a blessing for all people. The people all over the world, all nations will be blessed through you. Now he says, not only that, I am going to be your shield. I'm going to be your protector. And I am going to be your great reward. That word in the Hebrew reward it has this meaning of like a winnings. Like you are going to win the lottery and I am going to be that. God is making this amazing promise to Abram. Man, you are going to bless everyone. And not only that, I am going to be your shield. I'm going to protect you. And not only that, man, it's going to go really good for you. And so Abram's response is is very interesting. He's not like, oh, thank you, God. He says, I don't have any kids. He's like, yeah, that's all well and good, but... I don't have any children. You see, and it's a big deal not to have children in that culture. Children perpetuate your name, and that's the most important thing. And God's like, and Abram's like, yeah, that's, that's cool, but I got no kids. And God says, all right, step outside. Look up into the stars. Do you see them? Do you see how many stars are up there? That's the number of your descendants. You will not be able to count them. And you know what, Abraham? Abram? Not only that, I'm going to give them a land to live in. I'm going to give them their own land. And so, Abram's going to be a blessing. God is going to be his shield. God is going to be his reward. He's going to have descendants beyond what he can count. He's going to have a land that those descendants will live in. And what do you think he does? He drops to his knees and says, thank you, God. No, he goes, How do I know you're going to keep your promise? I mean, how do I know that that's really going to happen? And this is what God says to him. Verse 9 of Genesis 15. So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Verse 10. Abram brought all these things to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. 
Abram brings these things to God and he knows what's going to happen. He knows that that God is going to make a promise. God is going to make a contract, a covenant, and he knows what to do. He cuts them in half and he lays them down, almost creating an aisle to walk through. And the blood has been spilled. The lesser or the greater of the party, God is saying, Abram, I'm going to promise this to you. And this is how I'm going to do it. And Abram is going to enter into a covenant with God. God, if it's possible, is pledging his own life. That if he doesn't fulfill this covenant, Abram can take his life and spill his blood. Verse 17, when the sun has set, I'm sorry, um, verse 12, as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. God has just made this amazing promises to him. And Abram says, how do I know you're going to keep it? And God says, well, I'm going to keep it this way. But yet, a darkness comes over Abram. In the Hebrew, it's like the weight of the world crashes into him. It's like that, that dread that just, that just gets in the pit of your stomach and turns it to knots. And I got I to gotta ask, why? I mean, God has just made this amazing promise to him. Why has dread come over him? Because you see, in the covenant, in the contract, there are two parties. And those two parties have a responsibility God's responsibility is this. Abram, you are going to be a blessing to all nations. I'm going to be your shield. I'm going to be your reward. You're going to have descendants, and they're going to live in their own land. So what's Abram's responsibility in all this? What's, what's his side of it? Well, this is what God will tell him. Abram, this is what I want from you. You walk faithfully before me. You follow me. I'm going to be your God. And then he tells him, and you be blameless. You don't sin. You live a perfect life. No more sinning. No more messing up. You walk with me and you live perfectly. There is no possible way that he can pull this off. I mean, before the God enters into this covenant, he's already lied about his wife, that his wife was his sister, and gave her to Pharaoh. Abram knows that if he enters into this covenant with God, this contract, he is a dead man. If he puts a foot into that blood, he is dead. And so the darkness of that reality comes over him. Fifteen, verse 17. When the sun had set and the darkness had fallen, Smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Now, a better translation in the Hebrew would be a smoking fire pot and a torch appeared. They're two very separate things. And when you see smoke and when you see fire in the Old Testament, these things represent God. The, the, the smoke filled the temple or the burning bush. God is represented by smoke in the Bible. God is represented by fire in the Bible. And we see that. Losing my place, man. We see that they will pass between 
the animal. First, the smoking fire pot goes through. God saying, Abraham, Abram, I will keep my covenant with you. I will keep my promise. And if I don't, this is what you can do to me. And I can imagine what Abraham is thinking like, me and my big mouth. What did I do now? But notice, Abram never walks through the center of those animals. God knows that he cannot be perfect. God knows that he is not going to be faithful. And so what does God do? He passes through again as a blazing torch to tell Abraham, listen, if you can't live up to your end of the deal, if you cannot walk blamelessly, if you cannot walk faithfully, you can do this to me. I will take responsibility for your failure. God is giving his own life to tell Abram, I will handle it. I know you're not going to be able to do it. I will take responsibility. In the Jewish tradition from from just a a few books um, in Deuteronomy, it was established that every day, every single day, at 9 o'clock and at 3 o'clock, wherever the glory of the Lord fell, wherever they would consider the temple to be, that an animal would be, um, the blood of an animal would, animal would be spilled and the blood would be splashed against the altar. The Jews would say, God, remember what you said. Remember what you said to Abraham. Remember that you are not going to hold our sin and our flaws and all of our junk against us. Remember that you're going to take responsibility and not us. And for thousands of years, that tradition held every day at 9 o'clock, every day at 3 o'clock. One of those animals, throat slit, blood thrown on the altar. Remind God what you promised. Now fast forward 1,800 years. Jesus walks into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. People are psyched. They're just like, whoa, here he is, and they're whooping it up and they're laying palm branches down and and everybody's grooving, but the love is not going to last very long. In fact, towards the end of the week, he'll tell his boys, listen, go prepare the Passover. The synoptics tell us that he's going to eat the Passover with his his buddies. And they they get in that room and they all sit down. Now, unlike da Vinci's portrayal, the Last Supper is not a big picnic table. It wasn't culturally correct. It was more like a horseshoe. It would start here and, and it would come up and it would walk, it would be this way and then it would come down this side and everybody would be reclining. They'd be leaning on their left hand and they would be dipping and eating with their right hand and they would be all just kind of laying around. And you would think that, that the host would be in the center, but that's not true. See, Jesus would have sat all the way over on, on one side, probably one person in. And he would, he would lean and he would lounge around. And it's very interesting that the person on his right the first person at the end of this horseshoe, that's the most honored seat during the dinner. That's like, that's the person that you want to be sitting next to you. That's the person who is looking good in front of all the other people. The most honored seat. And then right behind him, so you have the first person, you would have the host who would be Jesus. And then behind him, you would have the second most honored position at the table. These two people, they were the host's favorites. These are the the ones that the host was like, yeah, these people have the spot at the table. And the way it was, because you were lounging around, 
in groups of threes, you would eat from the same plate. You would, you would take food from the same plate. You would drink from the same cup or pour from the same cup. You would dip your bread into the same bowl. And so we would have, the scriptures probably tell us, maybe John, and then you have Jesus, and then, then to his left it would be the most other honored person at the table. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. start reading in verse 21. And while they were eating, he said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sad and began to say to him one after another, surely not I, Lord. Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl will betray me. Again, scripture tells that John was probably the first one because he laid his head against the chest of Jesus. But in order for the betrayer to dip his bread into the bowl, he would have to be sitting to the left of Jesus. Jesus has given Judas a place of prominence at the table. Jesus has given the man who will betray him, who will sell him for 30 pieces of silver, an honored spot at his Passover meal. Jesus will even wash his feet later on through the dinner, in the dinner. Jesus treats his enemy with love. Because God so loved the world. And after dinner, him and the boys, they get up and they go take a walk. It's always good for a nice walk after dinner. And they end up at this place called the Mount of Olives in a garden called Gethsemane. Now, it's called the Mount of Olives because they grew olives. And this is where they would harvest the olives. Now, olives are harvested in the fall. Harvested. That's right, right? Okay. This didn't sound right. They squished them in the fall. And when they would take them, they would, they would take them when they were ripe, and they would put them in a, a trough of water. And they would put a big beam on, that, on, on the olives. And, and oil and water don't mix. And so the oil would rise up into the water. And they would scoop off the top. They would scoop off the oil. This would, be, this would have been considered the finest olive oil. And from there, they would drain the water out and they would take the rest of the olives and they would put them into to sacks, hemp or burlap or whatever. And they would lay them on a big stone and the stone would be all grooved and carved. And they would take these sacks and they would take more huge beams and they would lay these beams across these burlap sacks. And they would hang big weights off because they needed to be really, really heavy. And drop by drop, that oil would be squeezed out of those olives. Now, this whole apparatus of, of squeezing what, what the, the beams and the weights and the rock, it was called a gat shemanim. Say it with me, gat. Four, gat shemanim. It literally means to be squeezed, to be pressed. And so in the Garden of Gethsemane, we find something called a Gatshemanim, which was used to squeeze the oil out. And in fact, let's go to Matthew 26 again. And Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. 
And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him and began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground. My father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Jesus has recognized and is feeling the weight of what is about to happen to him. And it says in Matthew that he fell to the ground with his face to the ground in the garden of Gethsemane where they would squeeze the oil from the olives. And Jesus is pressed that the brokenness of the world is now resting upon his shoulders. In John's gospel, it tells us that, that his sweat was like blood, that it was dripping because of what was about to take place and what was about to happen. And so after he prays, he comes back to the boys, and, and now it's time. And the betrayer shows up, the man who had a prominent place at Jesus' table. And he walks up to Jesus, and he betrays him with a kiss. And Jesus is arrested. And he's taken to the high priest in the Sanhedrin. There's a childhood game that was played back then. And, and the, kids, the kids would get it in a big circle, and they would put one of their friends in the circle. And sometimes they would just make him close his eyes, or maybe if they had a piece of cloth, they would blindfold him. And, and they, would all, they would all kind of walk around the circle, and they would make noise. And one person from the ring would run up, and they would touch the person in the center, then run, run back. And the person in the middle would have to guess who it was. And they would do this until the person in the middle got, got it right, until they guessed who it was. But just like sometimes things happen, this game got a little perverted. And guards began to play it with prisoners. And what would happen is the guards would put the prisoners in the center and they would walk around, and somebody would come up to that prisoner and punch them as hard as they could. And that prisoner would fall, and they would come back and say, Who did it? Pick who did it. And if the prisoner could figure it out, he got to go back to his cell. But if he didn't, they would just beat him. Turn to Mark chapter 14. I'll begin reading in verse, the end of verse 61. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, Jesus said, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. The Sadducees did not believe in prophecy. They are poking fun at Jesus. They are humiliating him. You who believe in prophecy, tell us who hit you. You who say you fulfilled the prophets, tell us who hit you. Jesus is being demoralized, humiliated by a childhood game because the guards are now playing with him, beaten and spit on. The gospel tells us that, that Jesus goes to Pilate and, he, and he's going to stand trial. And, and, and it's, kind of a, it's kind of a mock trial and, 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 and the high priests, they're, they're whooping people up and they're trying to get him to be crucified. And, and Pilate being just a, a weak leader, 
He doesn't want a revolt on his hands. He just wants to get rid of this, get done with this. He condemns Jesus to death. So after being betrayed with a kiss from his friends, after being made fun of by his own people in a child's game that's gone wrong, Jesus is condemned to death. John chapter 19 will tell us that they took him out to flog him. Now, it's very interesting that flogging is a death sentence in the Roman culture. Maybe not right away, but sometimes it could take weeks for the prisoner to die of the wounds that he would sustain. And what they used was called a flagrum, and it was a handle, a wooden handle. And from that handle had strips of leather. And at the end of those strips of leather were, were sharp metal hooks and shards of bone and, and, and uh, lead or some type of metal ball used for smashing. And what you would do is you would tie the prisoner up, and they would, they would, begin, they would begin from the feet. And the object was to, to whip the prisoner, to sink those hooks in, and to tear flesh off. And so they would, they would start at the calves, and they would work their way up to the thighs and to the glutes, trying to get as much flesh as they could across the prisoner's back, across the back of the head. They would, they would flip the prisoner over and begin the face. It was sport to see what guard could take the ears off. And they would work down the chest to the genitals, down the front of the legs. This is what Jesus went through for us. Some historians, ancient historians write that it was such a bloody mess that birds would flock to eat the pieces of flesh, that dogs would come in and lap up the blood. The scene in The Passion of the Christ with Mel Gibson was probably not graphic enough for what really happened. But they're not finished yet. Jesus has more to go through. There was a game that the Roman soldiers played when they weren't conquering um, nations. And they, and they found a, it almost looks like a checkerboard. And, and they're sure that, they're pretty confident that many, many different games would have been played on this board. But, but there, there is one that they know about. And it's a game called Basoleos. Say Basoleos. That's better. And, and in the Greek, Basoleos means king. And so what they would do is the Roman soldiers would get together and um, they would roll the dice, whatever, and they roll the dice, and one person would be chosen as king. And they would dress that person up. They would put a crown on him. Now, he's a Roman soldier. They put a crown on him. They would, they would uh, put a robe on him. And for the day, he would be king. And so they would, they would, you know, break his stones a little bit, and they would kneel and say, oh, we hail you, king. And, and they would poke fun at him. But then they start gambling. They start gambling for his stuff. They start gambling for his possessions. They would gamble for his home. They would gamble for his wife. They would gamble for his children. And once everything was lost, once he had nothing left, the dice would be thrown one last time. And the winner of that role would be the person who would be able to kill the king. It was this ancient form of Russian roulette. In fact, it was so hideous that Julius Caesar outlawed it 
said, no, 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 you guys cannot play this game anymore. Imagine a game that the Roman soldiers were, could not play because it was too brutal. The people who created crucifixion and flogging and conquest. And so, they would play it with prisoners. Turn to Mark chapter 15. Verse 16. The soldiers led Jesus away to the palace and called together the company of soldiers. They put a, put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! And again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe, put on his clothes, and they led him out to be crucified. Jesus, once again, is being humiliated demoralized by a game. He is nothing but a game to be played with these soldiers. Verse 21, chapter 15. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, was the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country. They forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the skull. When they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, he decided not to take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. Then the uh, the written notice of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So... You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insult upon him. Roman culture would dictate that a crucifixion be taken, be carried out in a very public place, usually right outside of the city gate, so that people can see what was going on. It was, it was a deterrent for those of you who may rise up against the empire. And so they wanted to make sure that people saw what was going on. Now remember, Jesus is, is carrying this cross, and, his, and it's, just, it's just a cross beam on his shoulders. And he's walking through Jerusalem. It's a holiday. Josephus, this ancient historian, would say that there's probably somewhere around 2 million people in Jerusalem. And Jesus is trying to walk through, and he's carrying this cross. Remember, he's just been beaten, flogged, which is a death sentence. And he walks through these streets. Now the, the center post would have been permanently in the ground. And many times they would put spikes on that center post. So when the condemned put his back up against it, the spikes would rip into his flesh. Jesus was nailed on the cross, which scriptures say in his hands. But the Greek word for hand, it it kind of includes this whole area here. And so Roman culture would dictate that the spike would go in here between the two bones and the weight of the body would tear down those spikes so it would lodge right here at the wrist. This way, the hands wouldn't give way. 
and you can hang the criminal from the cross. His feet, his feet would have been pulled up underneath him and nailed either through the tops or his body would have been turned on the side and would have been nailed through where the Achilles tendon is. Understand the cross isn't what Hollywood makes it out to be, this huge, big thing on a hill. The cross is only five feet tall because the Roman soldiers wanted to make sure that you would look into the eyes of that condemned person, that you would be face-to-face with them. And so as Jesus is being mocked, and I'm sure spit at, it's done right to his face, face face-to-face. And could you imagine when his mom comes up to him and he tells John, his mother, Death would come very slowly, usually by strangulation or drowning. The condemned would would foam at the mouth. They would gurgle. Their head would fall back because the cross wasn't a a small T. It was a capital T. There was no place for their head. Their lungs would begin to fill up with fluid because when your arms are stretched like this and your body sags, your diaphragm doesn't have enough of strength to breathe, to inhale, and to exhale. And so the condemned would push themselves up with their nailed feet, scratching their back, probably on the stakes that were in the center beam of the cross, and take a breath and fall back down again. And slowly, their lungs would fill with fluid. And slowly, they would drown. This is the scene of Jesus' crucifixion. For six hours, For six hours, he hung that way. For six hours, people looked him right in the face and made fun of him. They thought he was a joke. He saved others. Why can't he save me? But life went on in Jerusalem. Two million people celebrating the Passover, walking through the streets. But the hour of three o'clock was approaching that day. And at 3 o'clock, there would have been a man standing at, in the high point of the temple. And there would have been another one standing at the base. And he would have maybe a sundial or maybe a, a, um, a, an hourglass. I would think this day it would have been an hourglass because it was really dark on this Friday. And at, at about 5 to 3, the priest in the temple, he would have that animal Because they are going to make the sacrifice to remind God, God, remember what you said. Remember that you are not going to hold our sin against us. And they would wait. And then the attendant would would call up and the shofar would blow. Say, remember, God, 
Remember what you told Abram. Remember that you are going to be the one responsible for our sin, not us. Remember what you promised us. God, keep your promise. And it was at that moment, at 3 o'clock, when that animal was killed, that Jesus looked up into heaven and he said, It's finished. And I believe it had nothing to do with his suffering. It had nothing to do with his ministry. It's finished. I kept the promise made 1,800 years earlier when God said that he would not hold you responsible for your sin, that he would be the one that's blood would be spilled. I have kept the promise. I did what the Father promised. I have taken responsibility for your sin. God kept his promise. Jesus is dead. His blood spilled. That's why God said it would happen 1,800 years before to a man in a desert. But see, that's not the end of the story. Because now we come to a place of a new covenant. Now we come to a place where the tomb is empty. Jesus has overcome death. Jesus has overcome our junk. Jesus has overcome our lack of faithfulness. Jesus has overcome our imperfection. God has kept his promise. God has taken his respons- our, the responsibility for us. And now we move into the new covenant of life, of abundant life, of eternal life. For God so loves you, he kept his promise. For God so loves you, he took responsibility. For God so loves you that he gave Jesus his one only son that whoever would believe in him would never perish but have eternal life that is the gospel that is the easter story that is the resurrection the tomb is empty we have been forgiven god has kept Lord Jesus, thank you. I pray I would never forget what you've done. I pray that you would bring it to mind and it would cause me to pause. You love us so much that you won't bring any of us to Thank you for life. Thank you for life in abundance. Thank you for forgiveness. And it's in that name we pray, the name of the risen King, Jesus Christ.
Amen. Happy Easter, everyone. If you're giving an offering, the joy box is in the back. Stick around for coffee. We got sweets. Have a great, great celebration.